We're picking up in verse 16, Isaiah 8 and verse 16. And uh, I'm just going to read a bit further back. I'm going to read from uh, verse 11 and uh, through to verse uh, 18. And then we'll uh, pray and then we'll start. For Yahweh spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Let's pray. Father, we pray tonight that as we study your word, Lord, that you would enable us to understand, to hear, to see, that hearing your word, Lord, we might be transformed by it. Your truth contained here in your word would impact upon our minds and renew them and change them that our, our lives, our walk, our behavior will be different as a result. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay. So having given his prophecies uh, to these people, we had in chapter 8 already... Um, the word to the Gentiles who would try and take down the house of David and then the warning to the house of Israel. There was the prophecy that Assyria, whom they were trusting in, would eventually destroy them. And indeed, in chapter 8, it is his son, his second son that we know of, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, whose name means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens, that is a, a name and a sign to Israel that their trusting in Assyria will ultimately end in, um, in judgment against them. And so there is the command to them to be different. And we ended that section with the prophecy regarding the Messiah, the, the, this child that was prophesied in chapter 7, Emmanuel, God with us. He will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. For those in the remnant, for those who, who believe and those who do fear the Lord, remember the warning was not to think as the others think, not to be concerned by what they say, and not to fear what they fear, but rather to fear God. And uh, those who do fear him, those who do trust, those who do believe that he will be a sanctuary to them, but for those who reject him, he will be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And last time we spent some time going through the New Testament and saw the places where these verses 
were, um, were quoted in the New Testament. So now when we come to verse 16, he then says on the conclusion of this, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. I'm a little disappointed with the ESV's translation teaching here. The word is literally law, and uh, it's repeated again in verse 20. And I, I think that by saying teaching, it's, uh, it's taking a, it's actually in the translation creating a, a very broad interpretation of law there. I think it might be better for us to see the law referring to the law, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch as we would call it, the first five books of the Bible. And, and, and then with that, Notice he says, bind up the testimony. Testimony would be the words of the prophets. And I think at the very least here, there is a recognition, uh, I think, from Isaiah here, that his words are prophetic, that they are being bound up, that they are being placed along with the other prophetic words, and they're being taken alongside the teaching, alongside the law. And that his disciples are going to have the inspired books of Moses, but they're also going to have his words, which are equally inspired testimony. And that, when, you, when, you, when you consider that, that's kind of pretty awesome, really, if you think about it, that here he is saying these things, and he says, you better wrap this one up, this is scripture, which is, which is astonishing. But, you know, is it any less astonishing than him hearing the voice of God audibly and communicating what God said and doing what God said? He's aware he's a prophet, and he's aware that his words are speaking of something in the future, specifically here in this context, the, uh, the, uh, the victory of Assyria against Israel, while they will damage it but not ultimately destroy it, and that is being bound up and that is being sealed, and his disciples, his followers are the ones who are going to do that. Now, I think there's two ways of seeing the, the reference to disciples here. Firstly, obviously, Isaiah, um, I say obviously, many people don't think about these things, but, but prophets had their disciples. You, you will see that particularly when you read through uh, Kings, 1st, 2nd Kings, and you look at Elijah and Elisha, that they'd have these groups that would follow them and that would be learning from them and... Uh, and they would have their own disciples. And it's no doubt that Isaiah would have his own disciples who did believe and did follow him. But I think more broadly than that, we need to understand what these disciples represent. Because those who said Isaiah is right, what are they doing? They're bowing before the testimony. They're agreeing that, yes, I should fear God. That, yes, we should not, we should not uh, trust in Assyria. We should trust in Yahweh. They're agreeing with Isaiah. And the fact that they're agreeing, rather than just saying, oh, I don't want to listen to that, shows their salvation. The disciples of Isaiah are the remnant. They are the believing, uh, the believing remnant of Israel. They are the ones who hear the word of God. He has spoken through Isaiah. They hear the word of God and they believe. And so there is this binding up of the testimony, the sealing of the law, amongst those disciples, the followers of Isaiah, those who are the remnant of Israel, and those who believe. Now, I want you to understand a few things about this. Firstly, there is the immediate context. He is, in essence, in this flow of context, saying um, that the things I've said, they're going to happen. Seal it, bind it up, don't change it, don't adjust it. They're there, they're going to happen. 
And then the, when he's gone, when Isaiah's finished, his disciples, his followers, and the generations of remnant for, for centuries afterwards will be able to say, see, that's what Isaiah said. See, that's what Isaiah said. And so there is this sealing of it. There is an irony in that um, if you read modern academic scholars today on Isaiah, the vast majority do not believe that the book of Isaiah was written by Isaiah. They think that you know, there's one part that he wrote, but then the other part, you know, well, it's talking about stuff that he really wouldn't have known, kind of forgetting that he was a prophet, and, and therefore that must have been written much later. And in some cases, and I tr trust me, it's painful to read, they will literally tear apart individual verses and say, well, this part of the verse may have been written by, by Isaiah, but this part was probably added later by some redactor. Someone came along afterwards and adjusted it, purely on the basis of what they think Isaiah might or might not have said. L let's just be really clear here. Isaiah is saying, here are my words, bind them up, seal them. Don't let anyone tamper with them. Don't change them. You who are my disciples in this, this immediate disciples, the remnant for generations to come, protect this word. Don't change it. Don't adjust it. Just keep it because this is the word of God. And yet somehow we're to believe that they did exactly the opposite. That literally that first generation of disciples, scholars will try and tell us, that that first generation of disciples just thought, oh, well, this is the kind of thing he might have said. Let's just throw this in. Let's just adjust that. And the very instruction, which they have preserved and kept, to bind and to seal the, the words, that that was disregarded and they added other stuff in. It's just a nonsense. And I think that this is something that we need to see that historically has happened. What's very, very interesting, um, some of you will have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many of you will know of them. Not so many will know why they're important. One good example of why they're important is that when, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1940s, the oldest existing copy of Isaiah that we had, well, the portions of Isaiah that we had, were written in about the 10th century, 11th century. So they were, the, the oldest existing manuscripts of Isaiah were, 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 obviously copies of copies of copies, were copied a thousand years after the time of Christ. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And these manuscripts were discovered in these, in these, these clay jars that were, that were written, that were dated to almost a thousand years earlier, about the time of the first century. And so you've got, we've suddenly gone from having manuscripts that are a thousand years later to manuscripts that are a thousand years earlier of the same book. And how many changes did they find? Virtually nothing. I mean, it was just word for word the same. I mean, a two becomes an into. I mean, changes on that kind of level. But essentially, it was preserved. One thousand years of copying and Isaiah was preserved. And yet we're supposed to believe that somehow it was all adjusted and changed in the early days. The very time when he said not to do that. And I think that here within these words, there is a statement about scripture more broadly. That the word of God, because it was understood to be the word of God, was protected, was cherished, was looked after. 
Again and again, you'll find people who are um, who want to disregard the scripture, and they want to they want to allow. Oh well, you know, you can't believe everything in the Bible because, of course, people changed. It was adjusted over the centuries. People added. You know, people who don't want to believe in the deity of Christ will tell you, well, that was kind of added centuries later, and what have you. And and there's no evidence to back it up. There's none at all because. These people understood it was the word of God and they protected it. They preserved it and they cherished it. It was the, the most precious thing to them. And really when it comes to the word of God, the word of God has been bound, it has been sealed, and it has been protected. And that isn't to say that there aren't variations in manuscripts, because there are. But it is to say that essentially when we have a Bible in front of us, we have, we have a... a, a, a astonishingly accurate representation of the original text. And we are incredibly blessed that God has protected and preserved his word in that way. And I think that you'll find that, and I've seen personally friends, loved ones, take this journey so many times over my Christian life. I do remember actually being at a a Christian arts festival in England when I was probably... 16, 15, 16 years old, something like that. I'd been a Christian for a few years, went to this Christian festival, and I was in one of the um, events in a big tent in a big field in England somewhere, and there was a, a, a DJ from a radio station in England who was a Christian, and he was mainstream DJ on, a, on I think at that time he was on Radio 1, which was kind of the most, the most listened to radio station in England. And um, he was very, very well known. He was just shifting into doing TV shows and stuff as well. And um, he was talking about his faith. And he says, I remember I was talking with a friend uh, who had been to university with. And they were saying that, and I, I remember this so vividly as a young lad, just them saying that the two of them, and I think maybe one other, were still Christians, were walking with the Lord. But all the rest of their university friends who professed Christ, were no longer walking with him. Like, out of an entire Christian union. And I just remember hearing that and just thinking, that's just ridiculous. How, how could that even be? And then, that was me at 15, and now I'm a little bit older. And I've had another three decades of Christian life, and I've seen exactly the same story unfold. And yeah, there are some who were never saved and who became Christians socially and then walked away without salvation. But there are others who backslide and who become apostate in a sense, abandon the faith. And again and again it comes down to this. When you let go of the inerrancy of Scripture, the floodgates have opened. Anything goes. Once you have decided that the Bible can be wrong about anything, then it can, be wrong about, it can be wrong about anything you like. And you've opened the floodgates and there are no longer any controls. And of course, because you started from a point of inerrancy and presumed inerrancy, if not a deeply academic position, because you start from that position, it feels like you're leaving home, going away. So these journeys tend to take time. They tend to be quite gradual, and people walk these paths. And you may have come across people doing this. And I tell you what, in every single case, without exception, there's a reason for it. And the reason is one word, three letters, sin. 
It's not that the Bible isn't clear. It's that there's something in the Bible that you don't want to believe. There's something in the Bible you don't want to agree with. There's something in the Bible you don't want to accept. Something in the Bible you don't want to do. And so you have a choice. You either bow to the word and try and keep the word, failing or otherwise. You could take a bizarre position of saying, well, the word of God is right, but I'm not going to do it and I don't care, which seems a little strange. Or to justify your conscience, you say, well, I guess the Bible isn't true in this point. Often it starts with social issues. Issues where the Christian church is at odds with the vast majority of society. And so, being a Christian in the world, living and working in the world with non-Christian friends and colleagues and bosses and, and what have you, it becomes hard to hold a position without feeling that somehow you're lesser person or you're somehow, you know, uh, you know, wrong or out of line or unloving or uncaring or something. And, and there becomes this pressure to unseal, to break that seal, to open up the Bible and say, well, that doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Now, I'm the first to say that sometimes we read the Bible and it, it seems to mean something. And then when we take a closer look, in fact, it doesn't mean what it initially seems to mean. There are things like context and there's language and there's, there's, there's all these, these different things that sometimes mean that the, what we initially see is, is maybe a bit of a misunderstanding. But I think in, at the very least initially, we should be people who, when someone, when the word says something, we need to have really good reason for us to think that it doesn't mean what it seems to clearly say in English to us. It doesn't matter whether we, if we know any Greek or Hebrew or what have you. If it says something in English that seems very clear to us in a broader context, for someone to say, well, it doesn't mean that, all of the burden of proof is upon them. We need to not unseal the law. We need to not unbind the testimony. It needs to stay as it is. There are a few parts of the Bible that I just don't get. They simply don't make sense to me. I'm not going to tell you what they are because I don't want you to have my struggles. But they're, you know, minor technical issues. But I can remember being younger and having a whole bunch. And as I've learned over the years and as I've matured, as I've grown in my knowledge of the Bible, pretty much all the concerns I've had have been dealt with. They weren't really problems. And what I've come to understand is that, and this is so much the context of everything Isaiah is saying in chapter 8, is we fear God. We don't fear man. We're not concerned about people saying, oh, you're in a conspiracy. We don't care about what they say. We fear God. And when we fear God, our trust is in him. And we're going to see in a moment the linking of fear and trust. Our trust is in God. And so when I look at the cross... That, to me, is proof that the Bible is true. Because I see on the cross the character of God. And when God's word says something, and I'm going, I don't understand that, I trust it because I trust God. And so the cross, which ironically is the last thing that any apostate who abandons the word would jettison, ironically is constantly there speaking to them, this is the character of God. This is who God is. God can be trusted. In the darkest of circumstances, in the worst of times, when everything appears to be falling apart, God is still in control and he has a plan and everything will become clear in the light. And if we can look at the cross and understand that, 
then when you're reading some awkward passage in the Old Testament and you don't think it makes sense to you, when you're reading some passage and Paul is saying something that doesn't seem socially acceptable, you can trust him. Because that's a far lesser thing to trust him in than to trust him in the midst of Good Friday that Easter Sunday is coming. So bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. This is the way that remnant, believing remnant, this is the way that true disciples of God behave. We have a bound word, a sealed word, and we trust in it, and we live by it. Verse 16. Verse 17. I will wait for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. This is what we call in this verse an inclusio. Little bookends either either side, a sandwich. Two bits of bread with something in the middle. Okay? So we start off with him saying, I will wait for the Lord. And we end up with him saying that he will hope in the Lord. These two terms are pretty much synonymous. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But the need to trust in him, the need to wait upon him, the need to hope in him comes because he is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Israel's times are treacherous. The northern kingdom of Israel has fallen. The southern kingdom is, at this point, the armies of Israel and Judah are are coming up to the to the boundaries of uh, Jerusalem, and everything is not looking good for the people of God. You know, again, and I I just, I feel like I'm on a, I'm a scratch record on repeat doing this in Isaiah and in Hebrews as well, but it's just such an important lesson. But you know, we can all trust God when everything is going well. Um, I'm going to trust God when I go to the, uh, the meeting with my boss. Oh, he gave me a rise. I'm going to keep trusting God, you know. I'm going to trust God for, for this. Oh, it's all worked out. I'm going to keep trusting God, you know. That, that's easy. That's child's play. To trust God when you get what you want, to trust God when your life is going well, that's no big deal. But what he's saying here is I'm going to wait on him. I'm going to hope in him while he's hiding his face from me. Now, I want us to understand this this phrase about hiding his face. So I want us to turn to a few other passages. Um, You can turn with me if if you're quick-fingered, or you can just uh, let me read them to you. But I want to read to you from Hosea 3. Hosea 3. Hosea 3 in verse 4 says, For the children of Israel... um, Sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse verse here. Hold on a second. No, let me come back to that later. That's a separate thing. Uh, Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. Read from verse 16. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. He doesn't mince his words, God, does he? Going to be whoring after foreign gods once you go on, Moses. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. That is a prophecy given to Moses that is now being lived out in the day of Isaiah. 
Isaiah is essentially quoting this passage and recognizing that what was spoken of in Deuteronomy, what Moses talks of here, is the very thing that he's living in in his day because they're being devoured. And he then goes on to say, um, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil they have done because they have turned to other gods. Moses prophesying the idolatry of Israel and that he would hide his face from them. And because uh, of that idolatry in Isaiah, he now has hid his face from them. If you go back to Isaiah, but go to chapter 1, you have Isaiah speaking the same way right at the beginning of the book. Uh, He says in verse 15, When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So in the foundational chapter of Isaiah, where he addresses their idolatry and deals with them, he says, you're going to be praying and raising your hands, and I'm going to be hiding my eyes from you. But the good news is at the end of the book of Isaiah, when that present tense becomes past tense, In Isaiah 54 and verse 8. Well, let's read from verse... uh, Oh, gosh, no, let's go back a bit (laughs) because it's a good passage. Verse 4 of Isaiah 54. Fear not, for you will be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, Yahweh of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. And the God of the whole earth he is called. For Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. So God, by the end of the book of Isaiah, he is the one who says, yeah, I did hide my face from you. But I'm going to seek after you. I'm going to pursue you with love once again. I'm going to be your Redeemer and redeem you. So Isaiah is going to continue this theme of God hiding his face and then God redeeming the love that he has for his people. And so the hiding of the face, going back to Isaiah 8, is basically a way of saying that God's favor is no longer on them because of their idolatry. God's favor. And I, you know, and I mentioned this a few times over the years, but when Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And he's drawing our attention to the entirety of the psalm, which has a very similar theme as we've just seen from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 54. In that God hides his face from Israel because of her sin. But then God ultimately lifts Israel up and redeems her at the end. And with Jesus on the cross, 
there is a sense. I don't think God ever forsook Jesus. I don't think that's the right word. That's the words of the psalmist who felt forsaken. But Jesus is pointing to the psalm, which is a psalm where one person is in a position where everything's going wrong, where everything is against them, when, when they're being persecuted and they're going through trials. And, and it's, God has forsaken them. The, God has hidden his face from them. There is this, this picture, but that God ultimately is going to redeem. And so it is with Jesus. He's not saying, hey, look, God's hiding his face from me. That's not the point of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because, of course, everybody could see that. Things weren't going well right there. There he is dying on a cross. What he's doing by quoting that is actually saying the opposite. Remember, when God, though God hides his face, he'll ultimately lift me up. He'll ultimately, ultimately redeem me. And that's what's being said. The hiding of God's face from Israel is because of their sin. And the hiding of his face from Christ on the cross is because he was bearing the sin of his people there and then. So Israel is hiding, sorry, God is hiding, Yahweh is hiding his face from Israel at that time. And yet, that's the, that's the meat in the sandwich. That's the important thing. But yet either side of that, he says, so Isaiah is essentially saying, I understand that God's hidden his face from us. I understand that we're going through a time where we're being defeated militarily. I understand that we're going through a time where the majority of Israel are unbelievers. I understand that we're going through a time when there is a wicked king doing wicked things. I understand we're going through a time when there's a huge amount of idolatry in the land. But I will wait. And I will hope. And I want us to understand, because of course, waiting again is another theme of Isaiah. You'll be familiar, I no doubt, with Isaiah uh, a little bit later on, chapter 42, that he will, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength and rise up on wings like eagles. Well-known passage. But I think sometimes we don't understand what it means to wait. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? I'd like us to turn to a few psalms. Um, where this theme is, is talked of. Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Verse 11 reading from, Teach me your way, O Yahweh. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Wait for Yahweh, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. Notice again the inclusio in that last verse. Wait, be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait. Waiting on God is another one of those phrases that has been destroyed by Christianese. People in certain wings of the church will say, well, just wait on the Lord. And I guess, I think what many of them mean by that is we'll, we'll sit cross-legged and go, um, and, and just see what thought pops into our heads. It's just absolute nonsense. Nothing to do with the biblical concept of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is not just saying, well, let's just kind of twiddle our fingers or empty our minds or do whatever else, and, and we'll wait around and we'll then see what it, it seems to us that God is saying. And that has been adopted, that understanding has been adopted in so much of the charismatic church today. The idea that we do nothing and then God speaks. 
And if you've come from that kind of background like me, you might be familiar with that concept. Waiting on, what should we do in this situation? I don't know, let's just wait on the Lord. Okay, let's do nothing and hope that God speaks. And what that normally means is that some idea pops into your head, ah, oh, that must be God. That's kind of how the whole, the whole show runs. Waiting on the Lord is not just not that, it's the opposite of that. It's not doing nothing and then God speaks. It's God speaks so you do something. Let me say that again for those taking notes because <laughs> it's important to get this, okay? Waiting on the Lord is not doing nothing followed by God speaks. It's God speaking followed by doing something. It's completely the opposite. So what he's saying here in Psalm 27, when he says, I'm going to wait on the Lord, he's saying, look, teach me your, your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. He wants to live the right way despite persecution. And then he says, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to let my heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So he's actively doing something. What he's doing is this. He's saying, my enemies are gathered against me, <coughs> but I'm going to see God's goodness. Because God has spoken, because he knows who God is, because he knows that God is a good God. He's obviously a student of Exodus 34, where God reveals himself to Moses. He knows that God is good. And because he knows that God is good... <coughs> God has spoken concerning his character. What does he do? He stays strong. He takes courage. He doesn't get flustered by the enemy, by circumstances, because he knows who God is, and so he waits for God to reveal himself. That's what it means. Let's look at another example. In Psalm 33, just a few pages on in your Bibles. Behold, verse 18, Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. That's our other word paralleling uh, weight in uh, Isaiah 8. Those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us even as we hope in you. Guys, can you just see these words being repeated almost synonymously? Our soul waits. We trust. We hope. All of these things. They fear. We fear God. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. So again, can you see the sequence here? They know about the steadfast love of God, right? That's the covenant-keeping love of God. They know about that. The word's already been revealed. <coughs> and because they know that, they do something. What do they do? They fear him, and they hope in him. Remember the word hope doesn't mean cross fingers, I hope it's going to work out. It means they have assurance. They are assured. 
There is no doubt. There is no, I hope it's going to work out. There is assurance because of who God is. They're concerned by him. And so God's eye is upon him. Notice again this interesting expression. We've been looking at the phrase in Isaiah about how God had hid his face. But when you fear God, when you hope in him, when you trust him, his eye is on you. In contrast to him hiding his face. And so they trust in him to deliver them from death. Their soul waits on Yahweh. They're waiting. And what does that mean? Does that mean doing nothing? No, it doesn't mean doing nothing. Their hearts are glad. They're trusting. And they have hope. Why? Because of the steadfast love of God. Again, we see waiting here, not being doing nothing and waiting for God to speak. They are doing something. They're trusting. They're actively working to say, Forget these circumstances, forget these trials, forget this famine that's in front of my face. God is loving, and I know he's loving. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's not going to let his people perish, and so I'm trusting in him. They're doing something because God has spoken. One more, and then you'll have it drilled into your heads clearly enough, I hope. Psalm 37. Psalm 37. We spent, I think we went beyond weeks into months doing this at uh, Tuesday night studies at one point. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh, trust in him, and he will act. And will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out his evil devices. Listen. Being still before Yahweh and waiting in Psalm 37 is about as active as any command could be. What does it involve? Well, it involves not fretting. Any of you prone to fretting about stuff? You will know if you fret on occasion, as myself, that it requires a lot of work not to fret. This is nothing inactive. Let me just sit and see what thought... If I'm going to just sit and do nothing and see what thought comes into my head, the thought that comes into my head is going to be a thought of fretting. I'm going to be fretting. To not fret means work. It means saying, be gone, thought. I'm not having you. You have no home in my head. Go away. It's an active effort to not fret. Also notice earlier on, trust in Yahweh, that's synonymous with waiting, and do good. It's easy to do good when good's being done to you. But when you're being treated badly, do you still do good? That's what it means to wait on the Lord. I'm not going to take the law into my own hands and respond in kind because I know that God has a purpose here. So I'm going to keep living for him. I'm going to keep doing what's right. Hence the phrase, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. God's given you a land. What's your land? I imagine it involves, if you're married, it involves an imperfect spouse. No secrets there. If you're in a job, 
it's an imperfect job with an imperfect boss. The land that you have been given, so to speak, is not a perfect place. What are you to do? To dwell in it and to be faithful in it. Actively doing what's right in the face of evildoers, in the face of wrongdoers. And trusting, look at verse 5, commit your way to him, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. That you do the right thing and ultimately that will become clear. That he will reward you for it. We've spoken about this so many times. That in the midst of persecution, we do what's right and we trust God who eyes upon us and who rewards us. So let's take all of that back to Isaiah 8. <coughs> what he says is, here's the word of God, verse 16. Bind the testimony, seal the law. Here's the word of God, okay? What am I going to do? I'm going to wait on the Lord. Whose eyes are God on? Those who wait, those who trust, those who fear. Where's God's eyes right now? Well, they're hidden from Israel. But the word to his disciples, the message to the remnant is the rest of Israel may not be fearing. The rest of Israel may not be trusting. They may have put their hope in Assyria. And the God has therefore hidden his face from them. But I'm going to keep trusting. I'm going to keep waiting. I'm going to keep hoping. Because I know who God is. And I will hope in him. And that's the command, as it were. The statement from Isaiah, I think, is, a, is a, in a sense a command to us all, to his disciples, to those who believe. That when God hides his face from the church, when the church compromises, when the church messes up again and again. It is our job to remain faithful. When those around us fall, it's our job to remain faithful. When trials come, it's our job to remain faithful. And that, my friends, is what it means to wait on the Lord. And I'm just going to say it one more time because I want you to take it away with you and carry it out with you. It's stuck in your head so that all those friends who think wrongly on this, that you can remember this little phrase. Waiting on the Lord is not doing nothing, waiting for God to speak. God has already spoken, so you're doing something. God has declared who he is. He has revealed his word. The testimony is bound. The law is sealed. And therefore, we know who he is. And regardless of anybody else, we wait and we trust and it requires a lot of effort to keep trusting in him when things go wrong. To keep holding our nerve when it looks like everything's going to get worse. To say, my hope is in him and him alone. And that's the word of Isaiah. Then verse 18, finally tonight. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh have given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Look at that. Two Mount Zion references in one Sunday. Old and New Testament. Okay. He's saying here that he and his children are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh. So God has given to Israel as signs Isaiah and his children. Now, his children have been mentioned in the pre this chapter in the previous one. We know of their names, Shear, Yashub, and Meir Shalal Hashbaz. Again, I suggest if you have children sometime and you need names, these are good, solid, biblical names. I think, I think Shear Yashub is a great name. 
A remnant will return. Brilliant name. Anyways, so these names, they were given, and they were specifically given as meaning. So we know, it's not like we're reading into the text here to suggest that the, the children are signs to Israel <coughs> for their names, because that's been clearly given to us in the previous chapter and a half. So let's remember what their names mean. Shear Yashub means a remnant will return. And Meher Shalal Hashbaz means the spoil speeds the prey hastens. They've trusted in Assyria, and so the judgment's going to come to them more quickly as a result. Notice also in the text it says, I and the children, which brings us back to the very first sermon I did in the book of Isaiah, which, if you were here, tells us that salvation is of Jehovah. Salvation is of Yahweh. That's what Isaiah means. Salvation is of Yahweh. And so, what is interesting, as we proceed with this book, we're going to finish off this chapter, and then we have um, chapter 9 and chapter 10, chapter 11 and chapter 12, which are part of the book of Emmanuel, as it's called, these chapters remaining. And when we get to chapter 9, verse 8, through to chapter 10 and verse 4, the theme is the judgment of Assyria. The judgment of Assyria has been prophesied and a sign has been given of this judgment of Assyria, whom they've trusted in, destroying them. And that sign is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. So he says, these, I and my sons have been given as a sign. And the outworking of the sign of Meher Shalal Hashbaz is nine, chapter 9, verse 8 to chapter 10, verse 4. Then in chapter 10, verse 5, through to the end of chapter 10, verse 34, we are dealing with the remnant. And that after the judgment has come, a remnant ultimately will return. When, when you're destroyed by another nation and they come to the brink of wiping you out, when it looks like they're going to completely destroy you, boy, you have to trust that God's going to keep his covenants, right? It looks like the covenant isn't going to be kept. It's like Abraham kind of looking at his wife getting older and older every day. says, that baby ain't coming. Just your faith just trickles away day by day. And they're seeing Assyria come and their faith is trickling away. And they have to trust in him. And so there is this encouragement that the remnant will one day return. And that's chapter 10, verse 5 to chapter 10, verse 34. And that is the sign of Shear Yashub. And then when we come to chapter 11 and chapter 12, and we finish off this section of Isaiah, it is all about the fact that salvation is of Yahweh. And so essentially what he's doing here in making this statement is he's setting up the rest of this section through to the end of chapter 12. And he's saying that uh, these uh, children and him are signs to Israel and now he is going to expand upon what those signs are. The last thing to simply mention is this, that they are signs in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Yahweh of hosts could be translated Yahweh of armies. It's talking of the heavenly hosts, the angelic realm. And we saw in this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, we saw the angelic hosts at Mount Zion being referenced there as well. This is nothing new. This is not something that was new to them in New Covenant times, but this was something that would be their inheritance ultimately. But here it is said in this way, a reminder, yes, Assyria has might, Assyria has armies, but it's Yahweh of hosts that we're trusting in. 
Yes, Assyria has its capital. Assyria has great land. But Yahweh dwells on Mount Zion. It's a reminder of who's going to win the battle and a reminder of whom to trust in. And I can't help but feel, guys, that every time I preach these sermons and the theme obviously seems to be very, very similar in Isaiah 8 as we go through this section, very similar in Hebrews. I feel every time I preach it, I needed to hear it again. That life comes with trials, life comes with temptations. And the key, the key to dealing with these trials and temptations is to wait on God, to hope in him, to trust in him, to say he has spoken, his word is sealed, and I know who he is, and I know I can trust him. And so I'll do what's right, I'll resist temptation, I'll stick by him, and I'll do as he commands, because as I do that, and as I fear him, and not life around me, as I fear him, his eye is upon me, and his favor is upon me, and I will trust that one day his goodness will be revealed to me. That's the essence of what the Christian life is. Fearing God, waiting on him, trusting in him, hoping in him, and living in the strength he gives day by day, regardless of the circumstances around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that this would be true of us. May we wait, may we trust, may we hope, may we fear. And may we live as you command, dwell in the land that you've given to us. And even when we despair, even when we cry out and lament, may we again be reminded of who you are. May we again behold our God, see him, know who he is, and to know that he will reward those who diligently seek him. He will make all things right and that he can be trusted in all things. Amen.